0: Hello, We the People listeners. We need your help to make this podcast even better. Go to bit.ly forward slash WTPfeedback and tell us what you think. That's a mouthful. It's bit.ly forward slash WTPfeedback. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a non-partisan basis. And on today's show, we discuss one of the most hotly contested constitutional questions of this election season. Does the Senate have a constitutional obligation to hold confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominees? On March 16th, President Obama nominated Judge Merrick Garland of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit to be the nation's 113th Supreme Court Justice, replacing the late Justice Antonin Scalia. Uh, Since then, the President and Congress have been locked in a struggle about whether or not uh, the Senate has an obligation to hold hearings on the nominee. And joining us to discuss the important constitutional dimensions of this question are two of America's leading constitutional scholars and returning champions to We the People. Erwin Chemerinsky is the founding dean and distinguished professor of law and Raymond Price Professor of First Amendment Law at the University of California Irvine School of Law. Michael Ramsey is the Hugh and Hazel Darling Foundation Professor of Law and Director of the International and Comparative Law Program at the University of San Diego School of Law. Irwin, Mike, welcome back, and thank you so much for being here.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's great to have me, have me back. Truly a pleasure
2: always to be with you.
0: Wonderful. Well, let's begin with comments from the president himself, who used his weekly radio address to call for hearings on the Garland nomination.
3: I understand that we're in the middle of an especially noisy and volatile political season. But at a time when our politics are so polarized, when norms and customs of our political rhetoric seem to be corroding, this is precisely the time we should treat the appointment of a Supreme Court justice with the seriousness it deserves. Because our Supreme Court is supposed to be above politics— not an extension of politics. And it should stay that way. So I ask Republicans in the Senate to give Judge Garland the respect he has earned. Give him a hearing. Give him an up or down vote. To deny it would be an abdication of the Senate's constitutional duty. It would indicate a process for nominating and confirming judges that is beyond repair. It would make it increasingly impossible for any President, Republican or Democrat, to carry out their constitutional function. To go down that path would jeopardize our system of justice, it would hurt our democracy, and it would betray the vision of our founding. I've fulfilled my constitutional duty. Now it's time for senators to do theirs.
0: Great. Well, let us uh, jump right into the constitutional debate. Uh, The Appointments Clause, Article 1, Section 2, Clause 2, says, quote, The president shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and councils, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for and which shall be established by law. Irwin, I want to begin with you. You signed a letter uh, in February with other constitutional law scholars arguing that the Senate has a constitutional duty to advise and consent which means to hold hearings and to vote on the nominee. Tell us why you think that duty
2: stems from the appointment clause and what the constitutional argument is. I, of course, could start with the text of the Constitution. It uses the word shall. The word shall in law is a mandatory obligation. But I think even a more important argument is based on separation of powers. The most basic principle of separation of powers is that one branch of government can't interfere with the functioning of another branch of government. Imagine that a Republican president is elected in November and there's still a Republican Senate. There's no doubt that the vacancy would then be quickly filled. But what if a Democrat is elected in November and there's still a Republican Senate? What if that Republican Senate would say, we're not going to fill the vacancy for the next two years, or if there continues to be a Democratic president, Republican Senate, the next four years, even the next eight years. At some point, doesn't that violate separation of powers by interfering with the function in another branch of government? If the answer to that question is yes, and I think it must be, then the Senate failing to consider the vacancy now this term is also a violation of separation of powers. Because by leaving this seat open until perhaps the spring of 2017 is very much interfering with the ability of the Supreme Court to fulfill its function under the Constitution.
0: Great. Thanks so much for that opening. Mike, what is your response to Irwin's two arguments? First, he says that Article 2 uh, is mandatory and imposes on the Senate a duty to consider the nominee, and second, he says it would be a violation of the separation of powers not to consider the nominee?
1: Well, first, the text doesn't impose a duty on the Senate. It, I would agree that it imposes a duty on the president to nominate, but the shall that everyone refers to is shall nominate and shall appoint. But the, uh, it is conditioned upon the Senate's consent. And the way it reads is it does not put any shall duty on the Senate. Again, the President shall nominate and by and with the advice of consent of the Senate shall appoint. The Senate's consent is a condition on the appointment. It's a check on the President. There isn't any duty at all imposed uh, by the plain text um, with respect to what the Senate may or may not do. Um, with respect to the, uh, with respect to this, as I understand his argument is that it would interfere with the Supreme Court's operation. Um, well. Uh, I, I think that the Senate, that, that's certainly a policy question, that the Senate consider whether it makes the Supreme Court less effective to not have this vacancy filled and for how long uh, that vacancy should remain open before it becomes a serious problem. But I would point out that the Constitution doesn't require that the Supreme Court have nine members in the first place. Uh, it could have eight members. Uh, and I think, uh, as a practical matter, I have some doubts as to uh, whether the supreme Court is uh, is substantially uh, affected by uh, by having that vacancy. I think there are ways it can work around it uh, with uh, with compromise uh, and perhaps reducing its uh, its ambitions to some extent. but in any event, I think that 's all a policy question. The Supreme Court continues to exist and to exercise its function uh, and uh, and the Senate uh, is not interfering with that.
0: great well, the arguments are well and truly joined uh irwin um liberal scholars have echoed versions of Mike's uh, rejoinder. Vikram Amar uh, says it's hard to see where a legal duty comes from. The the shall clause, he says the text doesn't use any language suggesting the Senate has a legal obligation to do anything. And on the second point, Noah Feldman has said that the Constitution says nothing about fulfilling Supreme Court vacancies. Congress could pass a law leaving the justices at eight or expand the number to 23. It's all politics. So one more round, please, on why you think it's a constitutional obligation from the shall clause and and, and why it's a separation of powers violation.
2: As to the first argument, shall, there isn't a word that's used with regard to the Senate that indicates whether it's shall or something else. But I think if you read the text in context, and one always has to read the text in context, it's meant to create a mandatory duty to fill vacancies on the United States Supreme Court. It would make absolutely no sense to say, The president shall, but the Senate can do whatever it wants. I think you have to see the word shall as applying to the president with regard to the duty to appoint and the Senate having the duty to advise and consent. Because otherwise, the Senate could ultimately end the function of the Supreme Court just by making sure that no vacancy is ever filled. Now, that goes to my second argument. As I said, I think it's the more important. I would hope we all could agree that there's a basic principle of separation of powers that one branch of government can't interfere with the functioning of another branch of government. Take United States versus Nixon as an example. The Supreme Court said, the president has executive privilege, the ability to keep conversations with and memoranda from advisors secret, but executive privilege can't be used to interfere with the functioning of the courts. That's why President Nixon was ordered to turn over the Watergate tapes. Likewise, the Senate can't use its advise and consent power in a way that interferes with the function of the Supreme Court. Of course, the number of Supreme Court justices is not set by the Constitution. Congress can change that, but it hasn't changed it. As of right now, statutes say that there's nine justices on the Supreme Court. So really what we have to talk about is, is the Senate's failing to fill this vacancy interfering with the functioning of the Supreme Court? There's no doubt it's interfering with the function of the Supreme Court. Think of the fact that just last week in a major case, The court had to ultimately dismiss it by a four-to-four margin, affirming the decision of the lower court. Or since Justice Scalia passed away, the court has granted review in only three additional cases for next term, showing how much the function of the court is impaired. In fact, it was none other than Ronald Reagan, when he was president, who talked about the need to fill vacancies on the court, because otherwise the function of the Supreme Court is significantly impaired.
0: Great. Well, Mike, let's focus on this separation of powers argument. Imagine, as Erwin suggests, that uh, a Democrat is elected president, the Republicans keep the Senate. Could the Republican Senate say we're not going to confirm a nominee for the next four years?
1: Uh, Uh, Constitutionally, I I think they could. Um, I'd like to make a couple of quick responses to uh, to what Erwin just said. Um first of all I think his response on the text makes clear that he is in fact reading in a shall that doesn't exist in the Constitution. Uh the Constitution doesn't say anything about how the Senate uh conducts its advice and consent uh function. Or rather I should say that Article two, Section Two doesn't say anything about it. Um but Article one Section Five uh gives the Senate the power to make its own rules of procedure to quote determine the rules of its proceeding. Um, and in the recent Noel Canning case, uh, the Supreme Court de- described this as a broad delegation to the Senate to determine how and when to conduct business. So I think it's clear that what the Constitution gives is, is discretion to the Senate to either uh, consent or not to consent. And I'm, I'm sure that Irwin would concede um, that the Senate could refuse to consent to the Garland domination. The only question we're talking about here is what procedures is the Senate supposed to use to consent to the Garland domination. Um, And Irwin wants to say um, that they have to use hearings, which, which, by the way, as I understand it, were never used by the Senate until the 20th century, um, and then a formal vote um, in order to decline to give its consent. Um, But that's not required by the Constitution. Nothing about hearings and nothing about votes with respect to nominees appears in the Constitution. Instead, what the Constitution says, again in Article 1, Section 5, um, is the Senate determines its rules of proceedings, and the way it is decided to proceed on this, this nomination um, is entirely in accord with the discretion that the Constitution has given it. Now, again, I want to be clear that there may be issues about, there certainly are issues about whether this is, as a policy matter, the right way to treat the Supreme Court, but what we're talking about here is what the Constitution requires. Um, I'd like to make just one other point in response to some of the hypotheticals that have been thrown around. I I do think that um, the the Supreme Court is an entity that is created by the Constitution, and if the Senate were to take action um, that would entirely eliminate the Supreme Court as a functioning entity, um, then that would be an entirely different matter. But that is certainly not what's going on here. The Supreme Court has functioned with eight justices, with ten justices, with six justices throughout its history. Um, and there's no reason that it can't, um, for what the Senate is now talking about, uh, just eight months or so, function um, function with uh, four justices. So I think the idea that uh, that this is somehow threatening the the functioning of the Supreme Court uh, as a constitutional entity um, is is really a, a law professor's hypothetical, rather than what's really going on.
0: Great, uh, Irwin, your response to Mike's uh, basic point that these are policy and not constitutional arguments, and that while. The Senate could not completely prevent the Supreme Court from functioning. It's had many different permutations of members over the years, and it can function fine constitutionally
2: uh, with eight for a while. Let me start with his argument from Article 1, Section 5, that each House can make rules for its proceedings. My point is, but those rules can't be such as would interfere with the functioning of another branch of government or violate the Constitution. Imagine the Senate were to say the rule of our proceeding is we will not hold a vote or even hold hearings on any African American nominated for the Supreme Court. I think that would be clearly unconstitutional. So the ability of the Senate to make rules for its proceedings is not unlimited. It's constrained by the Constitution and the rules can't interfere with the functioning of another branch of government. Mike says that if the Senate were to prevent any confirmation in the future and thus eliminate the Supreme Court, that would be unconstitutional. But I don't understand why you draw the line there. I think any time one branch of government is impeding the functioning of another branch of government, that violates separation of powers. The Senate can impede the function of the Supreme Court by not considering nominees, just as by eliminating the Supreme Court entirely. So I think the real question is, at what point is a delay in considering a nominee interfering with the functioning of the court? Now, it's not just a matter of, a few months or eight months, if the Senate Republicans are to believe they have no plan on holding a hearing or considering a vote until after someone is nominated post-January 20th, that inevitably will mean the longest vacancy in the history of the United States Supreme Court. I think that does impair the functioning of the Supreme Court. And I do think under the Constitution that the Senate has a duty. If it wants to vote without a hearing, I think it has the right to do that. But I think they have the constitutional duty to consider whether or not Merrick Garland should have the seat on the Supreme Court.
0: Great. Well, Mike, your response, if, if, we're, if we're calling this a policy question about whether or not the Senate uh, is impairing the Supreme Court's function, what's your response to Irwin's claim that uh, waiting until the election uh, will impair the Supreme Court's function?
1: Well, I think to be clear, the, the, the Senate is entirely entitled to refuse its consent. And I don't think that Erwin is arguing, and I'd be surprised if he was arguing, that there was any constitutional limitation on the Senate refusing its consent to this nomination and refusing its consent to a later nomination, and indeed continuing to refuse its consent um, for for a considerable amount of time. Um, What he thinks is that somewhere in the Constitution it says um, that the Senate has to refuse its consent by a formal vote. And it has to do it after an individualized consideration of a particular nominee. I don't see where any of that comes out of the Constitution. I think what the Senate has concluded, for better or for worse, and you can challenge this on policy grounds certainly, the Senate has said um, we are not going to consent um, to a nomination um, prior to the election because we have assessed the um, the policy arguments, the, the policy for the. That balancing the need for having an additional justice on the court um, with the advantages of delay until after the election can, uh, can give a read on what the American people think about this nomination. Um, and, and we are not going to consent. And so somehow this has been turned around into the question of whether they consider the nomination or not. Well, I think it, it's quite clear that they have considered the nomination, um, and they have, considered, they have concluded in light of that consideration um, that they are not going to consent. Um, to to uh, to this nomination at this time, and uh, I, I struggle to find. Uh, indeed, I'm, I'm not able to find anything in the Constitution that limits that, or anything in the Constitution that distinguishes that from the situation, which I'm sure Irwin concede the Senate could do, um, where the Senate would simply vote down this nomination in a formal vote, and vote down any future nomination that's made um, uh, by this president until after the election.
0: Irwin, do you concede that the Senate could? Uh... Vote down the nomination and future nominations until the election. And Mike says, in that sense, you're exalting form over substance.
2: Certainly, I agree. The Senate can vote down the nomination. The Senate can deny consent to anyone. But here, they haven't denied consent. That's where I disagree with Mike. Here, they haven't even considered it. In fact, on February 13th, just hours after Justice Scalia's death was announced, Mitch McConnell announced that the Senate would not even consider whoever President Obama nominated. He said that the Senate would not hold hearings. They would not hold a vote. To me, that's not considering. It's not denying consent. And here I think that the Senate is abdicating its responsibility. History completely supports my position. And tradition has always mattered in interpreting the Constitution. 24 times in American history, there's been a vacancy on the Supreme Court during the last year of a president's term. In 21 of 24, the Senate has confirmed the individual. This goes back all the way to John Adams as a lame duck president nominating John Marshall and the Senate confirming him within a week.
0: Mike, let's talk about that history. Irwin is correct about the numbers. The longest amount of time between nomination and confirmation was 125 days. That was the time between uh, January 28, 1916, and June 1, 1916, when Louis Brandeis was nominated and confirmed during an election year. You can learn more in my riveting new book about uh, Brandeis, Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet. So what is uh, your response to Irwin's claim that there is no precedent for a wait this long? Um,
1: well, I have two responses. Um, the, the first is that the fact that the Senate has made the approvals in the past doesn't establish a constitutional duty to do it in the future. It's um, the, the, it. As I said, it's a policy question. The Senate may have well have regarded the policy as being a good idea to get the confirmations taken care of. With respect to uh, John Adams uh, and John Marshall, I, I believe that he had a Federalist Congress. They, was quite, they were quite anxious to get that thing uh, uh, confirmed until but prior to the uh, Jeffersonian Republicans taking over the Congress um, shortly afterwards. So there are certainly policy reasons why the Senate might go forward with a nomination. Um, but that doesn't establish a duty to go forward with a nomination. Uh, and and uh, uh, the second point is that um, there, there's only one appointments clause. The, the appointments clause applies, as you read at the outset, to the Supreme Court, um, to lower courts, to executive branch offices. Um, and if you look at the Senate practice with respect to all appointments, um, in fact, there's a long-standing practice of the Senate not acting on nominees. Um, and indeed uh, the, the uh... the democrats uh, when they controlled the Senate during the bush administration were uh, were very anxious to uh, um, to uh, uh... uphold this precedent uh, with respect to the uh... the bush judges uh... the lower court judges so um, i, I, I and, and so you might say uh... well there there's been a different practice with supreme court justices but uh... the uh... what what the text requires what the constitution requires is the same um... for each kind of nominations
0: Erwin, your uh, response to Mike's claim that uh, we've had long delays for non-Supreme Court nominees and also to the claim that uh, historically the framers did not intend to require uh, the Senate to act on presidential nominations. That was an argument made by uh, the conservative uh, writer Adam White, who uh, during President uh, Bush's term, uh, he looked at the history of the advice and consent model and said that it was modeled on the Massachusetts Privy Council, a body that provided constitutional advice and consent. Uh, the Senate rejected James Madison proposed discretionary Senate veto where a president's nominee would have to be appointed unless the Senate had a majority vote against the nomination. What does the history of the advice and consent clause tell us about the president's constitutional obligations? I think
2: it has three questions. The first goes to, what's the role of history in interpreting the Constitution? Long ago in McCulloch versus Maryland, the Supreme Court explicitly said that history matters enormously in interpreting the Constitution. In fact, the Supreme Court frequently said, quote, history places a gloss on the Constitution. The fact that there have been 24 vacancies in the last year of President's term, and in 21 of 24, the individuals are confirmed, I think does tell us something about the meaning of the Constitution. And that the Senate long has perceived that the word shall applies to advise and consent just as applies to the president. That it is a duty that's based on separation of powers. Second, you ask a question about framers' intent. I'm skeptical that we will ever know the framers' intent. I am not an originalist here or in any other area. But I believe that the framers' intent was that the Senate has the role of either giving consent or denying consent. And that the Senate cannot use this power to impair the functioning of another branch of government. One branch of government never can hinder another branch of government, as the Senate is doing now. And third, that goes to the point with regard to lower federal courts. There is a difference between lower federal courts and the Supreme Court. If one lower federal court judge or a few federal court judges are not approved, there's still the rest of the lower federal court judiciary. But to have a vacancy on the Supreme Court last for well over a year keeps the Supreme Court from functioning and fulfilling its essential duties. One key role of the Supreme Court is to resolve splits among the circuits. Otherwise, the same federal law has varying meanings in different parts of the country. It's quite likely that there's going to be areas this year where the Supreme Court has no choice but to affirm lower courts by evenly divided courts, even though that means leaving a split among the circuits. That means the Senate is keeping the Supreme Court from performing one of its essential functions.
0: Okay, listeners, we'll return to this great conversation with Irwin and Mike in just a moment. But before we do, I want to thank you for listening and ask for your help in making this podcast even better. We're asking for your feedback. Uh, we're so glad about your loyalty, the precision and specificity of of, of your comments. I, I love the fact that you're writing to me about particular constitutional points, and I'm also hugely grateful that for the survey we're taking right now, we've already gotten a wonderful number of incredibly constructive comments. So please keep them coming. If you can just follow this uh, alphabet of a uh, link to give the feedback at, then you'll help us a lot. So go to bit.ly forward slash feedback. To share your thoughts. That's bit.ly forward slash WTP feedback. Tell us what you think and how we can make we the people even better. Okay, let's get back to the show. Thank you, Erwin, for summarizing my questions so well, um, Adam, and for answering them. Uh, Adam, I want to focus on the question of the framers' intent. Uh, as uh, Irwin said, it's murky. Um, I, I mentioned an article by Adam White, which uh, did conclude that the framers believed that there was a senatorial duty to act, But there is evidence on the other side. White notes a 1789 letter by John Adams in which he says Adams used language implying he perceived a Senate duty to act on nominations. What's your sense of what the framers intended about the Senate's duty to act on nominations?
1: Uh, Well, I think the Adam White article, which I've read, is uh, is outstanding, and and I, I find it persuasive. Um, I, I am more persuaded by the text of the Constitution than I am by speculation of, uh, of what the framers' intent was. Uh, and certainly I'm not persuaded by what uh, John Adams as president thought the Senate's duty was. Um, I, I would say with respect to the practice, um, again, I, I think I've given most of my answer already, but, um, but I think that uh, the, uh, uh, the, the only way that practice can establish a constitutional duty um as as opposed to simply a senate practice um is uh if, if and, and I'm not sure it would do it even here but if the senate had consistently recognized itself as being under a duty uh to uh to make these kind of uh um uh, to, to make these to, to consider and I want to get to that point again to consider the uh the nomination um and I don't think there's any historical record that shows the senate considered itself under that sort of a duty um but what, once again um, it seems to me, though, that, that we're, um, we're sort of quibbling over um, a, a, a term to whether the Senate is, is denying uh, its consent, whether in order to deny its consent, the Senate has to act in some formal way, um, or whether the Senate can simply deny consent by not consenting. And, and my, my view is, on, on the second, on, is, the second one is the correct one, um, the Senate can choose to withhold its consent by not consenting. And I'd just like, real quickly, just, just to add, as to Erwin's third point, um, that again, I, I don't see that the, that the Supreme Court is in any constitutional sense impaired. Um, now they, they, they may be it, it, there may be some inconvenience to them, um, but uh, we could have an eight member Supreme court if we wanted to, and the Constitution would have nothing to say about that um, and the only question about whether we should have one or not um, is is a policy question of whether uh, it functions better as a uh, as an even with an even number, so that it has to come up with compromises when it's closely divided, or whether a uh, whether an odd number is better, and and whether uh, um, so so that we can have narrow five four splits that uh, that resolve uh, important questions. That's something to to decide on a policy question basis.
0: Irwin, your response to Mike's point, including his uh, claim once again that uh, it's fine to withhold consent by refusing to have a vote. Rather than having an up or down
2: vote, it really is just a a, a formal matter. It's always been understood that when the Senate is functioning to advise and consent, it will take a vote. It will approve or it will reject. Many times in American history, the Senate has rejected nominees. Think here of Robert Bork or going back, Clement Hainsworth, Harold Carswell, or going back to the 1930s, John Parker, or many in the 19th century. But in all of those instances, it was understood by the Senate that its role with regard to advising and consenting was to vote. Here, I don't know how one can say the Senate is not consenting because the Senate isn't doing anything. I go back to what I said earlier. Mitch McConnell announced just hours after Justice Scalia's death that there would be no hearings and no vote. In other words, the Senate wasn't going to fulfill its constitutional duty of deciding whether to advise and consent. To me, this is obstructionism that violates the Constitution. I think, though, that Mike focuses on the most important question. He says, is the court impaired here? I think the evidence is clear. Certainly, he's right. We could have an eight-member court, but we don't have an eight-member court. President Obama fulfilled his constitutional duty and nominated somebody because the court is impaired today. I point to the four-of-four splits we've already seen. I point to the few cert grants since February 13th. To me, this shows a court that isn't going to be able to function. As I said, it's none other than what Ronald Reagan had said earlier. And if the Senate does what Mike's arguing for, this will be the longest vacancy in American history. It means not only will the court have only eight members this year, but they'll have eight members likely all of next term as well. And I don't even think it's reasonable to say that doesn't impair the functioning of the Supreme Court.
0: Mike, a beat on whether or not the court is impaired. On the one hand, Justice Samuel Alito said not long ago, that the court could function with eight members for a bit. On the other hand, Justice Elena Kagan said uh, very recently at New York University Law School uh, that the court has deadlocked twice since Justice Scalia died. She said, there's a reason why courts do not typically have an even number of members. We've seen this already. Uh, is the court impaired with, four, with, eight, with eight justices?
1: Uh, well, I, I guess I, to some extent, like to fight the question because I don't think the constitutional standard is whether the court is impaired. Um, to, to, to give a few examples, um, the the executive branch works better when its cabinet officers and and uh, and other uh, major offices are filled, um, but the Senate um, doesn't always confirm the nominees that are made. By the by, the president for those offices, and indeed the Senate sometimes doesn't act on them at all, um, and that impairs the executive branch to some extent because the president doesn't have the people in the offices that uh, that he trusts most. Um, but um, there isn't any constitutional objection to that because that's exactly the Senate's role. Um, And so I don't think that the question is whether they are impaired, that is whether they would function better if they had the vacancy filled or not. Um, uh, All I said was that I think the Senate cannot entirely uh, obstruct or... or, uh dismantle in effect the supreme court as a constitutional entity because the constitution does require that there be, the, be a supreme court but that's a very different thing from saying um, that uh, that some impairment some some uh, um, introduction of some inefficiency in the court um is rises to a constitutional level so i guess i reject the uh the impairment standard as as uh, what the constitution requires I guess I would say I'm. I'm also not persuaded that it's uh, that it's all that big a deal for the court to uh, to have only uh, eight members. But I think that that is simply a policy question that uh, um, that uh, should be addressed to the Senate. And and if if the Senate reaches the wrong conclusion, it should be addressed to the voters. And I'm sure will be addressed to the voters. Rightfully so. Um,
0: thanks so much for that, um, Irwin. How committed are you to? Uh framing your arguments as, as constitutional rather than policy or political questions. Noah Feldman has argued uh, that this is a political question left for political resolution to Congress. He says the Constitution says nothing about filling Supreme Court vacancies or the number of the Supreme Court. All the Constitution requires that there be a Supreme Court beyond that
2: we're in the realm of politics. I think it is a constitutional argument. Um, and I'll go back to where I started I want to go back first to the text of the Constitution. What I think Mike doesn't answer is that the sentence we're talking about twice uses the word shall. It says, he shall have the power by and with advice of the Senate, And he shall nominate and by and with advice of the shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers, councils, and judges of the United States, and all other of offices of the United States. It would make no sense to say that the word shall is used all of those times but doesn't create any duty on the Senate. Now there isn't a separate verb of any sort used with regard to the Senate, but I read from that textual provision and it's clear emphasis on the word shall, that there's a duty on the president to appoint people for vacancies on the Supreme court. And there's a duty on the Senate to advise and consent. Now, the second reason I think it's a constitutional issue goes to separation of powers. And this goes to Mike's last response to what I said. As I began, I think the most basic principle of separation of powers is that no branch of government can interfere with the functioning of another branch of government. Even when Congress is using its constitutional powers, it exceeds them when it interferes with the functioning of another branch of government. The Supreme Court has said this countless occasions where there are many aspects of separation of powers. I think what the Senate is doing here, unquestionably is interfering with the function of the Supreme Court and impeding the function of the Supreme Court. And so that's why I think there's a constitutional duty of the Senate to consider Merrick Garland to either vote him up or down.
0: Great. Uh, Mike, I want to imagine what might happen in November. Imagine that a Democrat wins the White House uh, and the Senate remains under Republican control. Uh, Might the Republicans conclude that they would do better to confirm uh, Merrick Garland than to wait for a Hillary Clinton nominee? And if they do so, would that undermine their current claims that the that, 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 that uh, they should not consider any nominees until after the election?
1: Uh, well, I think that's a question of policy that I would uh, probably not be qualified to get involved in. But uh, I, I think that the Senate is always... Uh, a Always capable of changing its mind. Um and in any event I'm not sure whether they've said they wouldn't uh consider until the next president or whether they wouldn't consider until after the election. Um but uh in any event i simply think that's something for the senate to decide and i think it illustrates um that the senate really is considering the nomination here and 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 again i think that uh wants to say that they have to consider by taking a formal vote but i think that nothing requires that and they can consider it as they are considering it and if you, if you think a consideration is required then they are considering it um and uh i would just like to respond quickly to uh, um um to, to what he said uh, just a minute ago, um, first off, I, I think the shall argument is, yeah, I invite the listeners just simply to look at uh, Article 2, Section 2, and it seems quite clear that the shall refers to the Senate, to to, to sorry, to the uh, President, um, not to the Senate, um, and it does not say that the President shall have the power to appoint. It says he shall appoint uh, if the Senate consents. Um, And uh, the final point is that I I still just have not heard from Rowan any explanation for why it's okay for the Senate to vote down this nomination and then another nomination and then another nomination and continue for, let's say, a year. Voting formally voting down nominations, which they—it seems to me—they quite clearly have the right to vote down nominations if they want. Why? Why it's okay for them to do that, but it's not okay for them to withhold their uh, consent um, in a manner other than through a formal vote.
0: Great. Well, Irwin, respond as you think best uh, to that last point about the difference between lots of formal votes and, and no formal votes and and then your sense about whether if the cha- Senate changes its position after the election and decides to confirm Merrick Garland, that undermines the current uh, constitutional or policy stance of the, of, the, of the senators.
2: As to the former, I focus on the words advise and consent. Those are words that connote action. As I've argued here, I think that the Constitution has to be interpreted in the context of history. Through the course of American history, Advice and consent has been understood by the Senate, including in election years, to require taking an action. Here the Senate is taking no action. As I keep saying, Mitch McConnell said, beginning hours after Justice Scalia's death was reported, that the Senate would take no action, no hearings, no vote. I don't think that fits within the historical meaning, let alone the plain meaning of advice and consent. Now, the second question you ask is. I think that the Senate, Democrat wins in November, is likely to confirm Merrick Garland. I think that that's going to be their policy choice. Um, In terms of the constitutional argument, I think the constitutional argument is the same no matter what the Senate does. The Senate has the duty to take action, voting up or down. History shows that. Um, And I think that my hope is that the Senate will take a vote on Merrick Garland, hopefully sooner rather than then.
0: Mike, w- w- uh, whether you think this is a, col- a constitutional or policy choice, no question that the stakes have been escalated. You know, Both sides have been increasingly resistant to the other side's nominees. Is this a choice uh, that may come back to haunt Republicans when the- she was on the other foot?
1: Um, well, I think it might because I, I, I do agree that there's something of an escalation here in the sense that the previous refusal to consider nominations have been uh, with respect to lower court judges, uh, although those were quite extensive in the Bush administration. Um, but uh, and then and, and taking it to the Supreme Court is is taking it to another level. But uh, in uh, the, there, there's a tit for tat idea in uh, in game theory that uh, allows institutions to do that. And, uh, what we hope is that ultimately uh, it leads to a uh, to cooperation between the two branches and and between the two parties. But that that's the, the way it gets worked out um, in politics, as uh, Professor Mar and Professor Feldman uh, have said. Um, just real quick on that uh, on the point about the refusal to consider lower court judges, that it can't be the case that uh, that advise and consent as constitutional language um, and as applied throughout history means the, to, that the senate must take some action because the senate has consistently throughout history um, declined to take action um, with respect to executive branch nominations and uh... and lower court nominations the, the, the with the supreme court that may be a new idea but there's only one appointments clause um, it applies to all the nominations um, and uh, and then that the way that Irwin says we have understood advice and consent simply isn't. And just one other point to get around to my area, which is really foreign affairs, as you know, Jeff um, the Treaty Clause says that this president can make treaties with the advice and consent of the Senate. It's exactly parallel to the Appointments Clause, except it then requires two thirds. Um, but that clause also has not been understood to require formal action by the Senate. Indeed, the Senate. Um, has in the past um, simply declined to consider trees um, that it really doesn't like and thinks has no chance of achieving the two-thirds. So written in exactly the same uh, uh, phrasing uh, as the appointments clause, uh, and I don't think there's uh, there's any serious question um, that the tr- treaty clause allows the Senate to, uh, to withhold consent on trees by something other than a formal vote.
0: Interesting. Erwin, your response to Mike's uh, treaty clause argument and also his suggestion that if there's been escalation, uh, both sides deserve blame. And it was really the Democrats who, by eliminating the nuclear option for the lower courts, brought this upon themselves.
2: I certainly agree that with regard to treaties, the Senate does not have to formally bring it up for vote. There's many ways of blocking a treaty. Of course, it takes two-thirds to approve a treaty, which makes it very different than when we're talking about Supreme Court or lower federal court judges. Also, I think you have to interpret the text based on the policies to be served. And this is why I keep going to separation of powers. The Senate's refusal to approve a treaty doesn't violate separation of powers. It doesn't interfere with the function of the executive branch. It's the Senate doing what its job is supposed to be under the Constitution, if it wants to deny approval of a treaty. But when the Senate refuses to consider a nominee for the Supreme Court and refuses to do its job with regard to advising and consenting, it does interfere with the function of the Supreme Court. And that's what makes it very different. Um, there's lots of blame to go around with regard to judicial nominations. I don't know why we start with the elimination of the filibuster a few years ago. I think we could go all the way back to the beginning of the country when Senates have denied confirmation of presidential nominees, when the Senate has disagreed with their views. The Senate refused to approve John Rutledge for a seat on the Supreme Court because they didn't like his views with regard to the United States being in a war between England and France. So there have always been disagreements between the president and the Senate over Supreme Court nominees. What makes this different is there's never been an instance in American history where the Senate has simply said, we're not even going to consider a nominee for the Supreme Court until after the election. Never before were there a vacancy this long on the United States Supreme Court.
0: Wonderful. Well, it is time, gentlemen, for closing arguments in this rich and illuminating debate. Uh, Mike Ramsey, your last words to our listeners about why the Senate has no constitutional duty to consider the nomination of Merrick
1: Garland. Well, I think they have no duty because the Constitution imposes no duty. The Constitution establishes the Senate as a check on the president. The president nominates, and if the Senate gives advice and consent, um, then the president can appoint. But if the Senate does not give advice and consent, the, ten- the president may not appoint, and that's the procedure that's established for all uh, appointments, uh, Supreme Court, lower court, executive branch, and so forth. The Constitution makes the Senate... The- to determine, give the determine gives the of the power to determine its own rules of procedure, so the Senate can decide how it wants to consider this appointment, how, whether it wants to have a formal vote, hearings, or whether it wants to proceed informally, deny its consent simply by saying that it is not going to approve this and not going to consider the matter any further. The Constitution says that that's perfectly fine for the Senate to proceed, um, and the Senate, and and uh, moreover. Uh, the Constitution in many places says, the treaty clause is just one example, um, that if one entity does proposes something an, and another entity consents, um, then, the procedure, then, then the proposal goes forward. But if they, uh, these, these examples are not understood, to impose any duty to consider. So the House passes a bill, the Senate approves it or not. The President proposes proposal a law, Congress approves it or not. The President signs a treaty, the Senate consents or not. Congress proposes a constitutional amendment. The states consent or not. In all of these cases, um, the the, uh, the second entity um, can withhold its consent simply by not doing anything. And so is the same for the appointments clause. And so uh, it may be a question, an important question, of policy whether the Senate is proceeding in the correct way. Um, but that's a political matter to be determined by the Senate. And if, uh, if the voters don't like what the Senate is doing, they can express that view uh, in November, exactly as our system was intended.
0: Thank you so much uh, Mike Ramsey Irwin last word to you your closing thoughts about why the Senate does have a constitutional duty to consider the nomination of Merrick Garland.
2: Thanks. The question here is always is what's the best way to interpret the text of the constitution. Place the start with the language of the constitution. As I read it this clause of the constitution twice uses the word shall. Both specifically refer to the president's duty there is no verb that speaks to the Senate specifically. But it makes no sense to me that we would say that the president has the duty to appoint, but the Senate can do absolutely nothing. I think in the context of that sentence, it's clear that the goal was to make sure that vacancies on the Supreme Court be filled. And that means the president has a duty to appoint. The Senate has a duty to advise and consent. What's sufficient to constitute advice and consent Can the Senate deny consent by literally doing nothing? I think that's inconsistent with the plain meaning and connotation of the words advise and consent. But if there's doubt about that, look to history and tradition. As I've said a couple of times, 24 times in American history, there's been a vacancy during the last year of a president's term. In 21 of 24, the Senate confirmed the individual. This seems to me to show that the Senate takes seriously that advise and consent requires this. But beyond all of that, I think we should interpret any constitutional provision in terms of the overall structure of the document. And here, separation of powers becomes key. Never did Mike deny one branch of government cannot use its powers to interfere with the function of another branch of government. Thus, the key question here is, is the Senate, by refusing to do its job of devising and consenting, interfering with the function of the Supreme Court? We've already seen the evidence of this in the four-four splits. Including in a major case, and only three cert grants since February 13th. The Supreme Court is not functioning as it should be. The Senate is thus impairing the functioning of another branch of government. That's a violation of separation of powers. It's for all of these reasons I think there is a constitutional duty incumbent on the Senate to consider and to vote up or down Merrick Garland.
0: Erwin Chemerinsky and Michael Ramsey, thank you for an unusually illuminating, substantive, and civil debate on the extremely contentious question of whether the Senate has a constitutional obligation to consider the nomination of Merrick Garland. Irwin, Mike, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much.
0: Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. We need your help to make this podcast even better. Go to bit.ly forward to share your feedback. Freedom Day is April 13th. Learn more and get involved at ConstitutionCenter.org forward slash Freedom Day. Get the latest news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page and Twitter feed. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. While you're in the iTunes store, leave us a rating and review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center, across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. We the People's member of Slate's Panoply Network check out all of our sibling podcasts at itunes.com forward slash panoply. And finally, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support and we rely on the generosity of people across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more.